Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, of course, we'll be talking about the trial in the Senate of Donald Trump for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And we'll also talk with Amy Willens about Haiti. It's been 10 years since the earthquake that killed 100,000 people. And despite hundreds of millions of dollars in promised aid, things are not good in Haiti. But first, is the president guilty? And should he be removed from office? Trump Watch starts right now. Fifty-one percent of the public is in favor of convicting Trump and removing him from office, according to the new CNN poll. Fifty-one percent. Forty-five percent are opposed to removing him from office. My conclusion from that is that impeachment has already been a success. Whatever happens with the Senate vote, a majority of Americans think Trump should be removed from office. If the Senate doesn't do it, the voters can do it in November. So I'm a happy camper today, and I'm happy also to be speaking with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So what do you think of my opening happy thought that impeachment is already a success? Well, what's striking about those numbers that you cited is that they are more or less identical to Trump's approval-disapproval rating, which is usually around 43% to 52%, so one-point difference uh, in uh, in either case. Uh, I I suppose what what it shows, therefore, is it's consolidated all the anti-Trumpers are still, uh, you know, are now committed, uh, would prefer he just be removed from office, and all the pro-Trumpers want him to stay. Uh, so uh, in that sense, uh, it, it, it kind of marks an escalation uh, t- uh, to the realm of impeachment and removal of what was already there in terms of Trump's approval and disapproval ratings. So I should let our listeners know that we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, day three of the Senate impeachment trial. There's going to be a lot more to come over the next week or two. Um, so... While we don't know exactly what's going to be happening Friday, Saturday, and so on, uh, we can look at the sort of the bigger picture of what's underway. Um, you pointed out recently that Republicans have for a long time warned Americans about the perils of socialism, liberalism, progressivism, and a host of other isms. But you say what we've seen in the first two days of the impeachment hearing and trial shows that there's a different ism that Republicans actually fear most. What, what is the Republicans' most feared ism? It is empiricism, and that's been clear actually for quite some time. Uh, you know, you go back to uh, the case for the Iraqi war and how it was going and all of this, and there was that famous quote coming out of the Bush White House, that the critics of of the war were were they were in the reality based community <laughs> yes. uh, at at one high level of abstraction that could have meant uh, the Bushy and the, the the neocons around Bush were into Leo Strauss fantasy land <laughs> uh, uh, where there were deeper levels of truth but more more 
more prosaically, what what uh, what it means uh, in 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 operational terms is that the American right has carved out for itself kind of a large fact-free zone uh, where they hope their uh, supporters uh, will will never leave. Um, this, this was also clear in, in 2003. I wrote a column in that year for the Washington Post based on a survey from the University of Maryland, uh, and they had polled people. There's an institute there, uh, uh, something about public opinion, uh, a public international uh, opinion on uh, policy attitudes or some such. Uh, and they had polled people on uh, some basic facts about uh, the Iraqi war. Uh, had it been proved that Saddam Hussein was in cahoots with al-Qaeda? Had American troops, in fact, found weapons of mass destruction? Most people got those questions right, but the people whose primary source of news, such as it was, was Fox News, got it wrong. And in fact, in the rather in-depth uh, polling that uh, this organization did, they found that really the more you watched Fox News, uh, the more you misunderstood. Um, now, you know, this is true up, it was true in 2003, it was true up to and including uh, what was last night, the second night, when uh, the uh, uh, House managers were making their case for uh, impeaching and removing Donald Trump. Uh, and Fox News didn't broadcast it. They went to, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. Uh, Fox News did cut away during the recesses in the, uh, in the trial uh, for the comments of Trump's own attorneys, which were sort of disparaging of the case that the House managers made. But, of course, the viewers hadn't seen or heard the case that the House <laughs> managers made. So it's this, it's this really little, very nice, uh, fact-free cocoon that the American right uh, exists in. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, in days to come whether Fox News does carry live uh, the case put on by uh, Trump's own lawyers, uh, because during prime time, at least, when they get their ratings and the shows that generate money for Fox, uh, they, don't, they, they don't show the, uh, uh, the case for uh, removing Trump. Well, I turned on Fox News last night and watched Hannity for just for one minute was about all I could take. <clears throat> he was saying the House Democrats said they had proved beyond a doubt that Trump was guilty of high crimes. But now they are saying they need more witnesses that they didn't prove their case. They can't have it both ways, Sean Hannity. wonder if you have any comment on that argument. Yeah, well, I think Adam Schiff dealt with that very well. I think Adam Schiff, uh, in fact, has dealt with the whole thing very well. Apparently, yeah. even you know, Lindsey Graham sidled up to him when it was over uh, and, and said he did a very good job. Which doesn't mean Lindsey Graham is going to vote uh, for convicting Trump. Um, and one of the things that uh, Adam Schiff showed was that in the 15 previous impeachments of federal officials that the United States Senate has held trials on, going all the way back to its founding in 1789, every single one of those trials has involved the calling of witnesses. Uh, including the two for presidents, uh, Andrew Johnson in 1868, and uh, Bill, uh, you know, Bill Clinton uh, in 1999-2000. Uh, in, in so, um, uh, you know, uh, even when you have a case, uh, it, it has been uh, common practice in every impeachment trial, and indeed in 
uh, most trials in regular courts and regular uh, you know judicial proceedings to call witnesses and uh, uh, su- summon uh, you know uh, subpoena documents and of course the reason in particular that the house managers want to do that is uh, they were blocked in the house by the administration by the trump white house uh... from getting the testimony of such key figures as john bolton who's now said he's willing to testify uh... and getting many documents and and uh, in the course of making uh, their case over the last two days the house managers have shown you know they have versions of documents they have incomplete documents but other documents that would show more clearly uh... that bore even more directly on the evidence uh... they thought they should bring before the senate so you know so in, in other words what hannity says is is the usual just partisan right-wing nonsense and indeed the very phone call that was the beginning of all of this uh... adam shift has point adam schiff has pointed out we have never had the full transcript of the phone call what we've had is a description of the phone call with excerpts from the phone call but also things missing from the phone call so at the the very root of this we lack the complete information that you would want if you're going to have a fair trial yeah uh, yeah i mean you know if uh, uh if this were any other trial if and if if the republican senators who voted against you know it's uh uh, having witnesses and subpoenaing documents at the beginning of uh, the first day of the of the trial, um, if they were just called up for regular jury duty, as I presume sometimes happen, and asked, uh, you know, about how they would approach the trial, if they said, "Well, we, we're not going to listen if there are any witnesses or, or any evidence adduced," uh, they would be excused from jury duty and. Uh, uh, you know, that's not a bad test uh, uh, by which to gauge them uh, over the last several days. Or or if they had pledged ahead of time to cooperate with the defendant, that would probably... Yeah, that would, that would, that would be considered, I think, uh, uh, probably a factor in dismissing them from, uh, from the jury, yes. Well, in addition to listening to Fox News, I also listened to the commentary on NPR yesterday. And they said, uh, wrapping up for the day, the Democrats have thus far failed. Uh, they have failed to convince any Republicans to join them. Is is that the way you would put it? Well, uh, you know, I mean, there's still going to be one more vote at the end of these presentations as to whether there will be witnesses and subpoenaing of documents. So, um, you know, uh, it's always possible that a few of the most electorally vulnerable Republicans, like Susan Collins from Maine, uh, might switch. It's, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think in general what Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are counting on is sort of a stone wall among Republicans that uh, just ignores the evidence. Um, and, of course, it's easier to ignore the evidence if no witnesses are brought before the Senate. So we shall see. I mean, I think the media made too much of a completely cosmetic change at the just before McConnell introduced uh, his uh, his rules for the uh, for the trial, in which you know a change was made that well, instead of uh, each side making its initial presentations um, in twelve-hour slots, two twelve-hour uh, sessions, will go to three eight-hour sessions because. 
you know, it looked bad if, if the sessions ran until 1 or 2 a.m., which, of course, the sessions on what the rules should be did anyway. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they said, well, this, is, this shows, you know, some, some Republican pushback among people like Susan Collins. I mean, what pushback? She then voted for the rules, which, you know, didn't allow for uh, calling witnesses or uh, subpoenaing documents uh, at the outset of the trial. So, I mean, that, that, was, that was sheer nonsense. And if Susan Collins is counting on that to help her win re-election in Maine, she is in worse shape than we even thought she was. Well, there was a great report from Andy Borowitz about Susan Collins. He said on the first day of the impeachment trial, Susan Collins spent hours trying to decide what she would have for lunch before ultimately ordering exactly what Mitch McConnell was having. There you go. Yes, I think that's uh, that's a fair statement. <laughs> well, I also... Uh, I did hear one other thing on Fox News last night, and that was uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, came on Hannity. Uh, you know, they're all focused on this Hunter Biden thing. That They're hanging their whole defense on Hunter Biden. And he said, Dershowitz said, if you're going to have more witnesses, the first one you should call is Hunter Biden because he's the one who's at the center of this whole thing, the phone call that Trump made to Ukraine. So what do you think of the logic of that argument? Um, slightly weak. Uh, I, you know, I mean, uh, the issue is, did Trump uh, condition uh, aid that had been appropriated to Ukraine to deal with uh, its, its ongoing conflict with Russia on uh, whether the uh, new government in Ukraine would announce that it was going to investigate uh, Hunter Biden, even though there has been absolutely no evidence adduced that Hunter Biden did anything uh, anything wrong. Um, so you know, it's the usual. Uh, uh, and basically, they don't have a defense for Trump. What they have is is distraction. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, when evidence, when the the real evidence against Trump is being presented, Fox cuts away. So there you have it. So we talked here about Susan Collins. She's probably the most vulnerable uh, Republican incumbent. In fact, right now her chances of re-election are, I think, something less than 50-50. Um, so she's got to and, and Maine is many, many more people in Maine are in favor of impeaching and removing Trump than give him uh uh, approve job, high job approval ratings. Uh, I wonder where the the Democrats might find another vote or two or three at least to call uh, witnesses. What about what about Mitt Romney? Mitt Romney. He certainly knows Trump is unfit to be president. Yeah. Well, you know, here we get to the question of what's Mitt, Mitt Romney's future uh, plans within the Republican political universe. Yeah. And if he has future plans in the Republican universe, and I don't know why he does, because he's clearly not going to get very far uh, beyond what he is now, Senator from Utah, in a uh, Trumpified Republican Party. Uh, but, it, you know, he, he has yet uh, been a sphinx. A, uh, a, uh, he's been silent on, uh, on all of this stuff. I think you're more likely to get uh, some inroads with Lisa Markowski in Alaska and Cory Gardner in Colorado, who, like uh, Susan Collins, is uh, represents a state that is clearly anti-Trump, uh, you know, then you are 
from from Mitt Romney, who uh, you know is uh, is is just a tomb. And then there's this other guy, Lamar Alexander, from Tennessee. He's retiring. He has no future in the Republican Party. Why uh, why doesn't he uh, vote for for witnesses? Well, we don't know. I mean, he's a, an old buddy of Mitch McConnell's. Uh, they go back to a time when the Republican Party was not yet clinically insane. And uh, uh, we shall we shall see. I mean, you know, the, 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 he's been around long enough so that he remembers um, a Republican Party that wasn't quite as debased as as it is today. For that matter, so has the senior Republican in the Senate, who is uh, uh, Chuck Grassley from, from Iowa. Uh, I mean, Grassley is such a cantankerous old coot, uh, it's, it's hard to envision, uh, you know, a sudden burst of uh, uh, acknowledgement of empiricism on his part. But, uh, you know, the, the old-timers do remember, uh, and certainly Lamar Alexander does, a time when the Republican Party had some responsiveness to fact. Uh, your uh, your friend and colleague E.J. Dion had a great column in the Washington Post on on Thursday, taking up this question of how is the impeachment trial in the Senate going to affect the reelection chances of Susan Collins and Cory Gardner, but also uh, other endangered senators like Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Martha McSally in Arizona. E.J. Dion pointed out that. We all feared that the acquittal of Trump would enable him to boast that he'd been vindicated in everything he did, that his call indeed was perfect, and that the whole impeachment thing was ridiculous. But, E.J. said, Mitch McConnell then has rigged the whole trial in the Senate by admitting no new evidence robbing the process of any legitimacy. So instead of being able to Trump to claim that Trump was cleared in a trial, a serious legal and constitutional undertaking, uh, people like Susan Collins, Corey and Cory Gardner and, and the other endangered Republicans will now be on the defensive for what's clearly an unfair proceeding, a cover up of Trump's uh, crimes. Uh, you think EJ is right about that? In a word, yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, by now, I think virtually everyone recognizes that McConnell has moved heaven and earth uh, to exclude anything resembling an actual trial. Uh, and uh, how that will play, I, I don't think that plays well, obviously not just with people who don't like Trump, but to the extent that there are swing voters out there, I think this is... Uh, uh, this is going to be a hard sell for uh, Collins and company. Uh, CNN, we quoted the CNN poll uh, at the beginning of, of this segment, the, the national results of uh, support for removal of Trump. Uh, they also did, uh, at least the Washington Post did, a fascinating breakdown of uh, s- support for removing Trump from office compared to approval of Trump's job performance, and they did it for battleground states as well as nationally. And even in battleground states, there are more people favoring the removal of Trump than give him 
uh, a positive job approval rating. It's something like, I don't know, 54 to 47 or something like that. So it's not people, you know, my friends always say you can't look at the national polls. You have to look at the state by state polls. But even the state by state polls at this point are not looking good for Trump right now. Right. That's why Republicans have to rely on voter suppression. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Trump is in real trouble. Uh, he would be in real trouble if this weren't going on, if this particular trial were not going on. Uh, and uh, it is a mark of his and the Republicans' desperation. They know that. And, uh, you know, their ultimate uh, ace in the hole is to uh, hope that, uh, uh, you know, their, their base is uh, well represented at the polls and is uncontaminated uh, by, uh, by the evidence. And uh, that, that, that it, from that follows Fox News' decision not to cover the evidence when, it, uh, when it's uh, produced on national TV. So, given that the Republicans have already announced they're going to vote for to acquit, given that there's no way 67 are going to vote to remove. The big question is what the Democrats can hope to achieve in the days that remain, what their goals should be since the Republican majority will acquit the president. What, what's your answer? Well, I think they're doing it. I mean, I think they simply make the, the, the overwhelming case, and they make it uh, the way they've been making it the last uh, day and a half, uh, you know, simply relying on facts, on documents, on uh, film clips of Trump himself, um, you know, uh, I, I think they're coming across as very credible, sober, uh, uh, you know, if, if I can use this term, patriotic Americans. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if the Trump response is, is simply, you know, to throw adjectives at them, which is basically the president's response. He said a record for number of tweets for presidential day on the first day of the trial. Um, you know, to the extent that there are voters in the middle of the spectrum who, you know, I think, I think the, the Democrats are doing the right thing uh, now to, to uh, separate those voters from any lingering uh, desire to vote for Trump. And in the couple of minutes we have left here, let me ask, let me switch our focus to the Democratic primaries, the upcoming caucuses in Iowa. Uh, surprising, uh, surprising poll results, which show Bernie way ahead, at least in some polls right now. Yeah, uh, in, in generally the most highly regarded Iowa poll, that of the Des Moines Register, uh, he's clearly leading uh, Joe Biden. And, and, and in many ways, the reason for that is that uh, the Des Moines Register poll assumes a higher percentage of first-time voters coming out in response to Bernie's, uh, Bernie's appeal and Bernie's field operation than uh, the Monmouth and other polls do. Uh, the Des Moines Register poll has a pretty good record of predicting things like how many first-time voters will come out. Uh, you know, so, and, you know, while Bernie and, and, and Warren and, uh, Michael Bennett and Amy Klobuchar are locked up in the Senate chamber, uh, during the trial, um, I, I think Bernie and Warren certainly benefit from the fact that they both have very good field operations in, uh, in Iowa, uh, which is still going, uh, going all out. So we shall, we shall see what the result of that may be. But and Bernie that- is certainly doing well in polls uh, generally right now, better than 
he he has so far this year, and uh, better than a lot of folks uh, would have predicted. And uh, and a week after Iowa is the New Hampshire primary, and the new poll that we've just seen from New Hampshire has Bernie at twenty nine, Mayor Pete second with seventeen, and Joe Biden third with fourteen. That's an that's a that's a big difference. Yeah, that's the WBUR poll, Boston uh, TV, and that's usually a pretty good poll in New Hampshire. Um, uh, if Bernie wins the first two, uh, then uh, it, it's, you know, this will be a very, very, very interesting year. Of course, some of this is coming at Warren's expense. Not a lot, perhaps, but some of it. And, um, I mean, if if this thing goes till, um, to the convention, uh, it, it is likely that, you know, Bernie and Warren delegates would have to get together to constitute a majority. I'm not, I'm not sure that... Um, I mean, for the first time, I'm not sure that Warren's doing well enough, actually, to uh, stay the course of the whole primary season. So that remains to be seen. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. It's been 10 years since Haiti was devastated by the earthquake that killed more than 100,000 people. For a report, we'd turn to Amy Willens. She's reported on Haiti for three decades. She published The Rainy Season in 1989. She's written about Haiti for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and of course, The Nation. More recently, she wrote the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She is also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. So what did your friends in Haiti tell you this time when you said you wanted to come? I'm always saying I want to come and then things interrupt me, but this time they kind of interrupted me and said, don't come. It's too dangerous. You can't come. You'll need an armored car. You'll need bodyguards. They're shooting in the streets. You have to bring fake credit cards. So if you do get robbed, you give them fake credit cards because they know what to do with your credit cards. You just have to be very careful. You can't go to the shanty towns, which is where I've spent a lot of my time in Haiti. And you shouldn't come. So then I went. But of course, uh, social breakdown, high crime and disintegration are nothing new in Haiti. Yeah, that's true. They're nothing new in Haiti, but it's it's worse now. The president is both inept and uninspired. He's also very corrupt, as his predecessor, who sort of named him to the presidency, also was. The president now is Jovenel Moïse, and his predecessor is the compas singer, uh, Michel Martelly. And they were both elected in kind of suspect elections with very low voter turnout, and the uh, corruption has been devastating and especially tragic because a lot of the monies that have been stolen are from this fund called Petro Caraib. And Petro Caribe is the Creole way of saying it. 
was a fund established by Hugo Chavez throughout the Caribbean to encourage goodwill toward Venezuela, make Venezuela a power in the Caribbean, but also to fund social projects. So he sold Venezuelan oil to these countries with a big discount, and Haiti got a very big discount so that they could put the money from selling Venezuelan oil on the market into social works that would benefit the Haitian people. Instead, the funds were pillaged just pillaged by officials in the Haitian government, by contracts with buddies and family of officials in the government, to the point where recently a group of Haitian auditors commissioned by the government documented this in a 659-page report. And that unleashed uh, public outcry and outrage and, uh, and a movement called Côte-Cob-Petro-Caribé, which means where is the Petro-Caribbean money? We have read a little bit about huge protests in in Haiti. It's a little hard to tell exactly what these have been focused on. Has there been a focus? So the beginning of the the, uh, demonstrations, well, there were food price demonstrations and gas price demonstrations, and then there were the Petro-Carib demonstrations, which began with this group that's now called the Petro Challengers. And it's a huge group and it's young people and they're really angry. And for a while under this new president, they could leave the country on cheap flights for uh, Chile and Brazil. But because of the changes in governments in Chile and Brazil, which are not great for Haitian immigrants, they stopped going and they were left looking at Haiti. This is my country. What is to be done? How can I have any future here? Which people have been saying in Haiti for a long time, but it has become harder. The poverty is worse, if you can believe that. And they started to ask this question, where's this money that was supposed to go to the Haitian people? And now you've all pocketed it, and we want the president to step down, and we want to replace him with a government for the people. All this was going on before you went, and then you did go. Your friends had said you'd need an armored car with bodyguards. What did you do when you arrived? The reason they said you need an armored car and bodyguards is because there are a lot of gangs in Haiti now, and the gangs are funded by various political actors in Haiti. Nobody really knows who, but there are at least a dozen of them, and I've heard much higher estimates. They can be small, like three guys. They can be big, like a real gang, like in a New York gang or a Chicago gang. And they shoot kind of semi-indiscriminately, and you don't know when uh, you might get in the crossfire or you might be a target. And Two journalists have been killed. Uh, and right before I went down... A French couple, really tragically, a French couple from like France Profonde, as it's called, the deep France, not Parisians, came to adopt a kid. And they basically, they got off the plane, went to their guest house and were killed by in a robbery gone bad. So it was very scary. I arrived. I get in an armored car with two great big bodyguards that a friend of mine managed to get together for me. I've never done this before in my life in Haiti. I usually drive my own crummy little car. And I went to my hotel. There was nothing, no shooting, not even any protests. It was weird. And I got rid of my bodyguards and my armored car very quickly. Now, we haven't talked about Trump yet. We can quote Trump, who famously called Haiti a shithole country. Do we need to know anything more about the Trump administration in Haiti than that? Well, Haiti's sort of gone off the radar for the Trump administration, but Jovenel Moïse, they kind of like him, the president of Haiti, because he 
got his ambassador to do Trump's bidding and vote against Nicolas Maduro's uh, election, the legitimacy of Maduro's election in Venezuela, Maduro, the sort of successor of Hugo Chavez, who they hate more than any foreign leader, even though he's dead. In the OAS, Haiti voted against Maduro, and that is a favor that Haiti did for the United States, and it, to the disgust of the Haitian people who love Venezuela and love a hero in Venezuela and who supported Simon Bolivar in his uh, taking of Venezuela and liberation of the Venezuelan slaves. That's a key thing in Haitian history. So they were really mad about this sort of turncoat betrayal of the Haitian Revolution, and Trump, meanwhile, although he doesn't really care about Haiti, he wants Moise there to do whatever bidding he needs done. And he sent three officials right before I arrived in Haiti. So one after another, they came. And one after another, they gave a photo op to President Moise. And one after another, they did not give any indication that they wanted him to step down. They did say that he ought to engage in a national dialogue, meaning talk to the opposition. But the opposition is a kind of complicated thing because they're the Petra challengers who are all young and not organized like a political party. And then there are all the um, older people, some of whom are very valuable and some of whom aren't. And the young people did the movement. And now the old people are the ones that, that the president is supposed to talk to. And he doesn't really want to talk to even them. And they don't even really want to talk to him. But with the Americans behind him, they feel maybe they have to talk to him. So where could these talks go? Could there be new elections? Are future elections something the Haitians would like? Electoral democracy has lost its sheen in Haiti, I have to say, after many, many illegitimate, unfair elections that have not been widely uh, attended and and then whose numbers have been switched and falsified. Haitians aren't that interested in electoral democracy, but there is one Haitian who is, and that is President Moise, because he wants to finish his term in three years, I think it is, and then then the next president will run, and that can be another fake election, and the the uh, feeding at the trough of of corruption can continue. So he doesn't want to leave, and he's sort of stuck, too, because Haiti has uh, a somewhat dramatic history of uh, getting rid of presidents. So he's scared of the people's movement on the one hand, but he also is servicing the corrupt, not just elite, but the bunch of corrupt people who've gathered around uh, the Haitian coffers. And they're dangerous, too. So, uh, you know, he is under tremendous pressure to remain, if, if he can remain. So after you got rid of your armored car and your bodyguards, you, you went uh, off to report on what's actually going on in Haiti. And one of the people you visited was Aristide, somebody you knew when. And who I haven't seen in many, many years. So this is President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He was elected in a free and a fair election. He got 60% or more of the vote. And no one has questioned that election ever. He came to power in 1990. And then shortly thereafter, eight months, he was ousted in a coup that was green-lighted by the United States. And uh, 
He went to Washington. That was under George Bush Sr. Then Bill Clinton came to office, and then Aristide managed to lobby him into bringing Aristide back. He was reimplanted. It's very rare that this happens, reinstated. Then he was ousted in a second coup in 2004 under Baby Bush. So um, he was taken out by Papa Bush and Baby Bush, and and now he's back again. He was allowed back in to Haiti under Obama. <laughs> See how I think the president of the United States is actually the president of Haiti. He was allowed back in, but he's a, a private person now. And uh, he's living out in his big white house in the sort of suburb of Port-au-Prince with peacocks in the yard. And he has a university he's established for medical students like orthodonture and dentistry and, and stuff that really Haiti needs. And kids are flocking to this university, even though it costs a little bit of money, but not a lot of money. And it's a very impressive thing that he's doing. But, but we can't tell what he's doing politically at all. I don't know if he is. I couldn't really tell. He talks a lot about politics. Is he really a force? I don't know. He's a beloved figure among the kids, but we don't know what he's really up to. Uh, you talked to a lot of other really interesting and potentially important people there. Who is especially notable? Well, there's one person I really like who talked to me about Haitian history. This is a person who's worked in non-governmental organizations for a long time in Haiti and has gone up the ladder and back down the ladder of these kinds of organizations, of which there are so many in Haiti because someone needs to do governance and uh, the Haitian government doesn't function properly yet. And this person talked to me about how all of these groups of Haitians who were working after the fall of Duvalier in 1986 for a new Haiti are now sort of supplicants for the money of outside organizations, and they've lost their Haitianness. And I do feel this very strongly myself, having gone there for about 30 years now. Um, and this person talked about also the loss of the intellectual class. So many people have left Haiti. There's this enormous brain drain that continues now, because if you're a person who can look around and you have any, um, any money whatsoever to get out, you're going to try to get out and live a real life. It's your only life. And the, so the people who remain don't have that ability and don't, haven't seen the world. And whatever happened to the Clinton Foundation Haiti program, if you go to the website of the Clinton Global Initiative, they say they've raised half a billion dollars for, quote, creating sustainable jobs and encouraging investment in Haiti. How's that going? Well, first of all, they had Clinton and Bush together raised a huge amount of money for Haiti right after the earthquake, more than half a billion dollars. We just don't really know where it went or if it ever came in. That's another thing. A lot is promised in the moments after something like the earthquake in Haiti, and then the money doesn't appear so that there's a lot of showing off. Like after uh, Notre Dame burned and all these French industrialists said they're giving billions and billions, and then it's like, where's the money? So this happened also in Haiti, but of course, it's not just the building of a church that's at stake. It's people's lives and futures and the rebuilding of a capital. A lot of the money went to things up in the north where the earthquake had no effect, uh, free zones for garment uh, companies to come in and hire Haitians to do that kind of work. Uh, otherwise, we haven't seen a lot of that money. There were you know, some uh, competitions for new housing for Haitians, but the new housing we haven't seen. We saw the models. 
So no one really knows where it's gone, but it seems to have either been corruptly stolen or gone into contractors from the U.S. and other foreign countries or uh, never arrived. So there's a lot of hazy pessimism today. Your piece for The Nation reports on what you call little sprouts of possibility everywhere. What were those? Well, one of my favorites is the, and I hope to God it's not corrupt, and I think it's not. It's a very interesting project called the Library of Cité Soleil, Bibliothèque Cité Soleil. It's under construction, so much in Haiti is sort of semi-under construction. So they took me around, and I've gone around it several times, and it's much further advanced than it was before, but it's still not really functioning, you know, like, it's a little Kafka-esque. Here's the playground. Here's the uh, sound studio. Here's where the kids are going to read books together. But it's all still cement block. So members of the community actually support this, and they have their uh, roles that they read online of each person and how much they've given. I gave them $40 once, and they, Amy Willens, $40 online on their Facebook page, which is extreme transparency. You still can't know if it's really, really transparent, but I believe in them. I'm putting my imprimatur on the Bibliothèque Cité Soleil, and I hope like in another two years it'll be done. It takes a long time to build anything in Haiti with real funds from the real community. Uh, and then there's a park out in Martissan. It's a beautiful park where I couldn't go because really Martissan is too dangerous still to go through. Um, but it's a beautiful park where I've been before, and the community runs it, and gang members from the community participate in it, and there's a market, a crafts market there, and it's a lovely little thing. There's a, uh, a tree forestation uh, project out in the countryside where the people, instead of relying on USAID to give them trees, they rely on money from their families outside Haiti because their families have money. But they're real families who come from that town to buy the trees and put the trees in. And So those are little exciting things. And the involvement of the, the outside Haitian community, the diaspora, is really important in Haiti too because they have the funds because they are inside functioning economies right now, and Haiti's economy is not functioning. Amy Willens wrote the cover story on Haiti for the new issue of The Nation. It's called Haiti in a Corner. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.